Well, let's open a word of prayer and we'll finish off the book of Second Samuel tonight, hopefully. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can gather here uh, this evening and, and just uh, conclude our study in Second Samuel and just pray that um, you would um, cause us to reflect on what we've gone through in First and Second Samuel and, and just help us to apply those truths to our hearts. And Lord, pray for those who um, couldn't be here tonight. Pray for them that you just uh, bless them and be gracious to them. And um, Lord, we pray that you would just uh, lead us and guide us through our study tonight. Thank you for each one that's here. And uh, we ask you to bless this time in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Second Samuel 23. We left off last week with uh, David's song of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. This chapter starts off, it says, The last words of David. Technically, it's really not true because uh, he continues on in uh, another book. So what this means really is it's kind of a, he's giving his summary. It's kind of like a uh, president who is leaving office giving his last address to Congress. That's kind of what you might say it is. So it's literally not his last words, but pretty close. And uh, we're going to see tonight that his uh, words are, are recorded here with the deeds of his, they're called David's Mighty Men. We're going to look at that a little bit. And then in chapter 24, we see where he takes a census of the people and he has to choose the judgment and um, dire consequences for Israel, and we'll, we'll look at that as well. But first, first off, we see this uh, chapter starting off with the, kind of a, a psalm of David, you might say, or a song. He, he starts off in the first five verses. He says, now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David. He kind of gives his lineage here. The son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, really speaking of his anointing of the Lord, uh, the anointed of God, the, of the God of Jacob, the sweetest psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The God of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Then he mentions there in verse 5, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper all my help. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But the worthless men are like the thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand, but the hand who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. So what, what David is starting off here, he's talking about basically uh, where he's come from, what he's done, and how God has used him. And uh, he talks here about the, the anointing he had upon himself. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. Okay, that was God clearly working through David in a myriad of ways. Verse 3 says, The God of Israel has spoken. And it's kind of a something that was, was done through him. So he's kind of looking back. He's not really looking forward. And then he noticed there, he says at the end of verse 3, The one rules justly, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. 
And so he's really kind of talking about himself that way. I mean, not that he was perfect, but that he did have somewhat of a fear for the Lord. And when you read this, it's, it's kind of a, a different kind of read, but when you read a little between the lines, you see that really he's saying, look, I'm not perfect, but you know what? God is, and God used me almost in spite of myself. Um, and, you know, he was trying to be faithful to the task that God had called him. Remember, he didn't, he was probably one of the kings that didn't have to um, uh, have a campaign to, to make himself king, right? I mean, God chose him to be king. You remember that whole thing? We looked at that, right? I mean, he comes out, all the sons come out, and they're like, okay, none of these guys are the king. <laughs> and, you know, well, I do have one other one, but it wouldn't be him, you know. Well, wouldn't you know, that's exactly who God chose. And it kind of aligns with other scriptures that, that God says he chooses the, the odd things of this world to confound the wise kind of a thing. And so here you see uh, David um, kind of recounting, you know, that, hey, I didn't get here on my own. Um, God was behind me uh, the whole way. And in verse 5 there, he really kind of speaks of, of this, the, the covenant that he had. It's, he says it's an everlasting covenant, covenant. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant. And it, it's really a, a picture of our own salvation, ordered in all things and secure. You know, when you stop and think about it, it wasn't us who chose God, right? Scripture says just the opposite. That the only reason we draw near to God is because he first, what? Drew near to us. And in eternity past, set us aside so his love could be set upon us. Uh, It takes us kind of out of the equation. And so he says, because of that reason, this, this agreement that God made with me, this covenant... Uh, is secure. It or, it's ordered in all things. And he's probably looking back on his life and thinking, yeah, I remember the days when I was hiding in the cave and, I, you know, this or that, or people were chasing me and all these things. He's, all these things are running through his mind. And now he's stepping back and he's looking at it and going, wow, you know what? God was in control of all this. It was done by the purpose of God. And that's a kind of a rewarding place to be. It's an overwhelming place to be. We've all probably been there at times when you look back on your life and you realize, wow, that time that was so dark and so horrible, now you look back on it and go, wow, out of that came this. You know, I wouldn't be the person I was today if I hadn't gone through that time. And so David is saying here that, you know, it's God who's holding him in his hand. It's God who's ordering all these things. It's God who's making him secure. And he says there at the end of verse 5, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? You know, that doesn't mean we get everything we want. But when our desires are God's desires, he definitely says that they're within the realm of being fulfilled. Um, and then he switches quickly in verse 6, and he talks about not, he switches kind of from the, the godly people, the people who were, like himself, and then he, he switches over to the, the godless. And he says the worthless men are like, all, are like thorns that are thrown away. And so, literally, it, it means the, the wicked en- enemies of God. 
And the one thing that we've learned as we've gone through the study of David's life through First and Second Samuel is that if you're an enemy of God's chosen one, <laughs> David, then you're an enemy of who? You're an enemy of God. And we just have to remember that. Because sometimes, you know, people lash out at Christians and Christians forget, well, wait a minute, they're not really lashing out at me, they're lashing out at God. And we, we have to remind ourselves that way. Because if you don't, you take it personally, and you kind of start to lash back, and, and that's never appropriate. So you, you have to be careful. And, 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 and he's saying here basically, you know what? Um, if you're an enemy of God, you're, you're godless, uh, worthless. You're like a thorn that's thrown away. For they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron in the shaft of a spear. And so he really kind of lays out the thing here that, you know what, you're going to meet um, your own judgment of God with judgment. You're going to be at the, on the other end of it. And it says, and they, were ut- they are utterly consumed with fire. So... Not a, not a nice ending for those who oppose the Lord. And there's a lot of people today that oppose the Lord. As a matter of fact, you know, um, most people oppose the Lord. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says narrow is the, what? the gate, right, that leads to heaven, to life. Broad is the way to destruction. So, you know, the idea that heaven is going to be overpopulated is just not biblical. <coughs> um, that doesn't mean we don't work hard to share the Lord with people and, and get the gospel out there. But even with that effort, we have to realize that, you know what, it's not, it's not us. It's not, it's not totally up to us. It's, it's God working in people's hearts that's going to make a difference. And so he kind of gives his little speech here about himself, and then the text turns to what's called David's mighty men, or the soldiers of David. And this kind of passage here, all the way to the end of the chapter basically, talks about all the exploits of David's mightiest warriors. And they're kind of, I broke them down there in your outline, to three groupings. You had the first grouping that was basically made up of three individuals who were like way above everybody else. You had a second grouping that was uh, made up of a couple individuals, and then a third grouping was everybody else. And so he kind of, that's how he kind of breaks it down for us. But, you know, David was not a man who um, was a a solo warrior. You know, he always had men around him. He always had people that he could trust, and sometimes they didn't work out, but, (laughs) um, you know, uh, he wanted people that he could trust and, and people that would go the distance with him. Um, I remember reading about David Livingstone, the missionary working in Africa. And some friends wrote him and they said, hey, David, we'd like to send other men to you. Um, have you found a good road into your area yet? And he replied with this, which is classic. He wrote back, he says, if you have men who will only come if they know there is a good road, I don't want them. 
I want men who will come if there is no road at all. See, that really speaks of David's men, these mighty men that were behind him. Uh, there's an article in Leadership Magazine. It was kind of poking fun at the, the uh, low commitment level in most churches today. And uh, it pictured a church building with a sign in front. And the sign said this, The Light, L-I-T-E, Church. 24% fewer commitments. Home of the 7.5 tithe. Uh, 7.5% tithe. 15-minute sermons. 45-minute worship services. We have only eight commandments. Your choice. We use just three spiritual laws and have an 800-year millennium. <laughs> Everything you've ever wanted in a church and less. Uh, I thought that was, that was kind of funny, but that's almost kind of sadly true. Um, one pastor in an article said 90% of our churches across the country require less commitment than the local Kiwanis Club. That's probably true. It is. And so, you know, down through the ages, when you look at these mighty men, these were men that were made out of some kind of commitment. Uh, they wanted to do the honoring thing before the Lord. And I think whenever God has done any kind of work in history, he's done it through a band of committed people, people who were committed to the Lord together. They locked arms and they said, okay, bring it on. Um, God doesn't usually generally work through people who are lukewarm or through those who, um, who don't have any love for the Lord or whatever, but rather those who have a fervent love and a fervent commitment to Christ and his kingdom. And that was the case here with David, as we see. It's, there's a bunch of names here. We'll see if we can try to get through them. But um, when David's kingdom was established, it wasn't he who established it. It was God who established it. And through David's reign, the name of the Lord, basically, of Israel was published far and abroad. Everybody knew about God because of his kingdom. Uh, but great as he was, he didn't stand alone. He needed people to support him. And he had this mighty band of warriors who accomplished really great feats of valor. And it lists some here for us. They were committed not only to David, but they were committed to his kingdom, and they were committed to doing the right thing before God. And so if God's going to really accomplish any great work among us here on earth, he wants to raise up a mighty, mighty band of, of men and women, I'll say, um, in our midst who can and do great, mighty things for the Lord. Um, so the first grouping here, it says in verse 8, These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Johas Bas Hebeth, a Tecumonite. He was chief of the three. So he's the leader of the three musketeers here. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. I mean, that's an amazing feat. That, that's an amazing feat. I mean, that's, that's quite a few, quite a few uh, done. So we have this individual. Then you have, it says next to him, among the, the, the three mighty men was Eli, 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 uh, um, Eliezer, Eliezer, yeah, the son of Dodo, son of Ahoyi. And he was with David when they defiled the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. 
and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to his sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And so he was also uh, a wonderful uh, warrior of, of David. And then uh, uh, Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite, the Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And then it tells us that the three of these 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim, and David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. So the Philistines had taken over Bethlehem, and David just mentions this. He says, And David said longingly, Oh, I wish someone would give me some water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Just made a comment. You can see how much his warriors respected him. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. Kind of like your wishes, your wishes are command. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord. He said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of men? who went at the risk of their lives, therefore he would not drink it. But, I mean, just the idea that they would go in there and um, get this water for their leader at great risk to their own lives showed you kind of how much on the edge these three individuals lived. They, they didn't think anything was um, too tough for them. And so that was the, this first group. The second group... There, beginning in verse 18, starts with Abishai, the leader of the 30. And so you have three, three individuals in the first group, and then you have this, this next group mentioned, and he was the leader of the 30. And he once killed 300 enemy soldiers in a single battle. And you notice there, it says, he wielded his, uh, he will, and he was the brother of Joab, by the way, he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. So he was kind of in name only, <laughs> it says. Uh, he was the most renowned, renowned of the 30, and he became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. It's just kind of weird sometimes when you read the Bible. It's like, who cares? I mean, it's just kind of silly, you know? But, okay, you got these three guys, and then you got this fourth guy, and he's the leader of, of the 30, but he doesn't, he, he's really a bad dude, but he's not as bad as these three. Uh, but his name's up there with him, but, but he didn't attain to their, their level. Uh, sometimes you, you just wonder, you know. And then, then the, uh, the next guy here, verse 20, it says, Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab and also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. I mean, it's like, okay. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's interesting, the details here. Um, 
And he struck down an Egyptian, another little side comment, a very handsome man. <laughs> the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaniah went, um, went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the 30, but did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. And so you see here that um, uh, Benaniah was kind of the, you know, the secret service of the day. He was, he was one of the guys that would, would protect David if something, something would happen. Uh, he killed two of the, the Moab's mightiest warriors. He killed a lion down in a pit and even took out an Egyptian on his, one of his things. And then basically verses 24 to 39 gives you a bunch of names, which, you know, we can try to pronounce them if you want. It's kind of interesting, but we don't have to. Uh, and it, it just name after name after name. And, and it's the rest of the guys. And uh, at the end there, verse 39, it says Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. And so these, these were classified as really um, David's mighty men. These were the people that were part of his... Um, the, the leadership in his kingdom. Uh, they, were, they were leaders, they were warriors, um, they were very valiant men. And it's, it's, it's good to know that somebody like David, who you think so many, you know, boy, wow, this guy's an incredible individual, but he, he couldn't do it alone. He needed help, he needed assistance. And, you know, it kind of gives us a, a picture for our own. We can't do anything by ourselves. We all need some, someone to fall on or assistance help to some degree and uh, any questions on chapter 23 before we head into chapter 24 it's funny because when you read commentaries on second samuel usually they'll have verses one through seven and then there's nothing else <laughs> just nothing they don't talk about the mighty men at all they just say oh david's mighty man so it's kind of a interesting read Oh yeah, there's a purpose. Yeah, it's a lineage. It's a lineage. Yeah, but I just always think about that he, because he allowed it in there for his glory and his honor. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is they're not all from Israel. No. Yeah. No. It's a cross section of different. Yeah. And and I think too, it's you know I I always thought I wonder if somebody was left out. <laughs> How would you feel if you left somebody out? You know, what a bummer, you know. But yeah, I know. They just kept coming back, huh? That's true. Yeah, you're right. They just kept, kept coming. So then the last chapter here deals with David's sin in uh, verses 1 to 25. And this is also accounted for over in First uh, Chronicles chapter 21. And so, um, if you compare notes between the two passages, you'll see some differences, and we'll, we'll talk about those. Uh, but here, in 2 Samuel 24.1, um, it kind of reports that it was God. It says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them. 
Uh, now, if you look over at First uh, Chronicles 21, it says that Satan, uh, it was Satan who did this. It wasn't God. And so there's a um, discrepancy there. And the best way to explain it is that, you know, sometimes God uses Satan <laughs> to do whatever he wants. You know, that's, that's how it works. Uh, Satan is in control of God. God is in control of, of Satan. He's sovereign over him. And so, uh, you know, he sovereignly used and allowed Satan to be used in this way to achieve his own uh, purpose. Um, 21. It's the same account, but it just says that uh, it said then then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel, and so you kind of see um, the uh, the discrepancy there. But the sin that surfaced really was pride. We talked about this Sunday. Um, pride is at the root of every sin. But here, I think David's proud heart, God had to deal with it. Um, he said, go number Israel and Judah. And so God used Satan to purpose, put this purpose in, in David's heart. And, you know, the... That was the, the the project was to go number everybody, see how big an army you have. You know, it's kind of like if every Sunday we said, "Hey, somebody get a head count." <laughs> you know, in church, uh, go number Israel and Judah. Verse two. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, "Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people." All right. Now. You know, there, there's nothing <laughs> inherently wrong with this. You know, there's no, there's no, uh, there's nothing here that says that they shouldn't do this. But at the same time, um, it's revealing David's heart once again. Once again, David isn't hasn't reached perfection. He's still a sinner saved by God's grace, just like everybody else. And so, Joab. Uh, realizes that, you know, this is not a good thing. What you're doing is you're, you're kind of shifting your, your trust from God into your mighty army. He says, may the Lord, verse 3, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the King still see it. But why does my Lord the King delight in this thing? In other words, why are you focusing on this, David? This isn't necessarily important god is your protector not all these people and so joab kind of issues a protest here to the king so you know he's still the king verse four but the king's word prevailed against joab and the commanders of the army so joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of israel and sometimes, you know, you, you think if you get pushed back on something, you know, a wise person might stop and reconsider and say, well, you know, maybe, especially when this has happened several times in David's life, right? I mean, he's done other things uh, similar to this. So, you know, but he goes down the same, the same path again. 
and he he begins to count. It says they crossed the Jordan and began from Ur and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. They came to Dan and Dan. They went to Sidon, around Sidon. They came to the fortress of Tyre and all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to uh, the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. This is how long this project took. Okay, using valuable resources. For what? (laughs) It's kind of a silly you know, a silly thing to do, just so you can say, look at how many people I have. Um, and so it gives the, the territory of the census for us. It gives us the time, how, nine months, 20 days. And then it, it lists the, the, uh, the totals. And here's where you have another issue with First Chronicles. Um, because really the, the surface, the sin here is that um, he was he was numbering Israel. He was putting a head count on this, and that's where his trust was going to be. He was putting more trust in his own forces than God. He was taking credit for all this, and God saw that. God sees everything. And so it took him that long, and then it says there uh, um, in verse 9, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. I mean, they went all over the place doing this. You know, it's not like, oh, we'll just, you know, count how many people we have in Redwood City. I mean, they're, they're going far and wide. It's a big task, nine months, 20 days. And in Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500. And so, 500,000. And so, it says that... Um, First Chronicles says um, in verse five. First Chronicles twenty-one five says basically one million one hundred thousand and four hundred and seventy thousand. Uh, so there's a discrepancy here, but in First Chronicles it includes all the available men of military age, not just the ones that are seasoned for battle. In in Second Samuel is saying the guys that were able to um, valiant men, the people that were kind of good with a sword. In Chronicles, it's counting everybody who's anybody. Um, and then they had an additional 300,000 people of military age who maybe never fought, but they were like served in the reserve, you might say. And so you can, you can figure this out. You know, I mean, and I've never seen a discrepancy in the Bible where you can't honestly come to a sound conclusion um, because it's God's word it's perfect sometimes there's some errors in, in translation things like that but for the most part um, it's a trustworthy text um, so as far as, as Judah was concerned the number in 2nd Samuel is 30,000 more than the 1st Chronicles figure and um, but in 1st Chronicles it makes it clear MacArthur says this, that the numbering was not completed by Joab because he didn't get to the census regarding Benjamin or Levi before he came under conviction about completing it all. And so Joab was glad to stop when he saw the king change his heart. So they didn't get the, the complete numbers there. But 
they, they went through this whole, this whole thing. They got this whole thing done. And it says there in verse, uh, verse 10, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. So God's conviction fell upon David and convicted him of his sin. And that's, that's what happens every time. You know, everybody else probably thought, what's the big deal? But see, God knew what was going on in David's heart. God knew that there was pride there, that he was trusting in, in all these numbers versus what was going on in his, his own uh, uh, putting his trust in the Lord. And it's easy to do that, too. You know, it's a lot easier to trust the Lord when you have a couple million bucks in the bank versus you don't know where your next penny's coming from. You know, it just is. You know, uh, to say it anyway. Um, But when you have absolutely nothing and you only have to trust the Lord, then you realize, wow, this is how it should have been all along. So we have to, you know, we have to be on guard, especially in America where we live because we're we're really in need of nothing for the most part um, in our society. And so God convicts his heart, and it says that his heart condemned him, his conscience got to him, and really he it says that it struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Um, what's he doing? He's confessing. He's confessing his sin. Confession basically is saying the same thing God would have said. And that's exactly what he did. Um, so many times when we sin we don't immediately confess our sins. We want to run the other way. We want to try to work it out on our own. And God says, just come and confess it. It's already forgiven. Just admit you did it. It's not a big deal. I mean, I'll forgive you. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant. You can see how severe his conscience has been convicted here. For I have done very foolishly. Uh, when you stop and think about it, all, all sin's foolishness, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter what the sin is, but he recognized his willful rebellion here against God. Uh, this isn't something that God wanted him to do. It's not something that God desired him to do, but God used Satan to put this into his heart to reveal, once again, the pride that was hidden there. And we all have things hidden in our hearts that maybe sometimes we don't even know it's there. And God has ways of refining us and sanctifying us and, and exposing those things over a period of time. And then we're broken before the Lord and we realize, wow, wait a minute, I thought I was really doing well. <laughs> and now I'm back on my knees before God. And, and that's probably how David felt. Oh man, here I am again. I've sinned greatly. What I've done, please take away the iniquity of your servant. I've done something real stupid here, God. In verse 11, And when David ro- arose in the morning... The word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. So here we have, you know, a lot of times we think that when we sin before the Lord, all we do is we just confess, God forgives, and everybody puts on a happy face and we just walk away, right? That's not the case. It's generally not the case. Sin has consequences. Just because you confess it, just because your sin is forgiven, doesn't mean the consequences aren't going to be there. 
And this is what David is kind of showing, or God is showing David here. He, he lays out for him, and he, this is brutal. I mean, what, what God has him go through here. So this prophet comes and says, okay, here's what the Lord's message to you is, David. And he's probably thinking, oh, good, hope I'm forgiven. Thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them. Let's make a deal <laughs> that I may do it to you. Verse 13, so Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? That's choice number one, three years of famine. Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? So do you want to go back to the whole Saul routine, you know, hiding in caves and all that for three months? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So you have famine, foes, and a pestilence happening here. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, um, and, and by the way, implicit in the idea that he's going to be chased down by his enemies was that he would die by the sword. That's kind of the under, so it's kind of like a death sentence um, to go back to that little hide-and-seek game. So verse 14, David kind of gives the, the answer that David said to Gad, the, 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 the seer there, the prophet, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So he thought, well, okay, uh, rather than let the enemies chase me, that's not a, a good option. But I'll take the, uh, the uh, pestilence. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. Now, you know, I mean, sin has consequences, right? But can you imagine being responsible <laughs> for the death of 70,000 of your in people? That's it. That just blows my mind. I mean, that's, you know, it's just the idea that you had to, you had to choose this. Um, and you wonder, I mean, what, what's he thinking here? You know? Um, I don't know. <laughs> you know, the years of famine. Yeah, I. You know, it's it's uh, it's 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 interesting. I think that it's it's something that um, he figures. Well, it's only three days. <laughs> Uh, 70,000 people. Can you imagine the bodies piled up? The stench through the land? And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented. Wow. God's grace steps in the pardon. God stays the handle of the death angel, which is about to wipe out Jerusalem. It probably would have been more 
said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aranah, the Jebusite. And David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Um, Newsflash, David, it already is <laughs> from your previous mess-ups, you know. Um, but you see, I mean, in a way you see the, the grace of, of the Lord here, but you also see the dire consequences of, of sin. Um, and David knew he was counting on this almost. He was, I mean, he, he from the very get go, he said, "I'm going to, I'm going to go with the Lord. We'll, we'll go with this, this thing. I'm not going to let the enemies. They won't, they won't have any mercy on me. God might have mercy, and He did. Uh, so He took the the third option. And he's probably thinking, "Well, it's not as long. You know, what could happen?" I'm sure that the dire consequences really bothered him, <laughs> to say the least. But it brings about kind of a secondary confession there. I mean, it, you know, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. And, and sometimes, you know, initially we'll confess a sin, but then when God reveals the consequences of the sin and we realize, wow, this sin really hurt some people, this sin really caused some mayhem, um, it causes you to almost repent all over and to feel sorry all over again. And sometimes that's okay because the sin is so dire. Um, what's not okay is when you can't pick yourself up from that place and move on. Um, when you're stuck in that that position of feeling that weight and burden of that sin on you and there's nowhere to turn and you don't know what to do and you're just carrying it, carrying it, carrying it. And, and God says, what, what are you supposed to do? Cast your burdens upon him for he cares for you. And that's the position that we have in Christ, that we can go to our Savior with our sins, recognizing that there, are, there may be dire consequences for our sins. But we can count on his forgiveness and we can definitely count on his grace and his enablement to get us to the next step in life. So he sees a pardon. And then in verse 18, he's instructed um, after he receives his pardon, he's instructed to buy a threshing floor. It says, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of the, that Jebusite. And so David went up at God's word as the Lord commanded and when uh, Aruna uh, looked down and saw the king and his servants coming on towards him, and Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy a threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. And Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king Take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing uh, sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood 
basically he's saying, here's everything. All this, O king, uh, I'm going to give you. And Aruna said uh, to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. So this guy was intimidated, but he was also probably being gracious. Hey, you know what? You look like you're in a bad spot. <laughs> Let me help you out here. I'm just going to give this all to you. Um, at this time, the altar was really associated with the tabernacle of Moses. It was located at, at, at Gibeon. And so David was instructed by Gad to build another altar uh, to the Lord at the place where the plague had stopped, kind of as a uh, place of sacrifice. And uh, it indicated where the Lord's choice was for building his temple. And he says here, I will not uh, offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. I mean, just think of that, that verse. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Um, so many times when we offer things, whether it's our time, talent, or treasure to the Lord, it costs us very little. It's, we're usually generally, especially in America, not giving out of sacrifice. I'm, re- I'm reminded when we were in India and... Um, they had, I think it was some of the, the ladies that were coming to the conference we were doing and uh, some of the pastors, they were, I, I think I got this right, they had to decide whether to tie that Sunday to the church or to come to the conference because they couldn't do both. They just couldn't. They didn't have the means to do it. And so after talking to their pastors, they said, no, 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 you need to come to the conference. You know, um, and they did come. And, you know, uh, I think, we had, I don't know if we helped them or something or whatever, but I think we did as a church. And, but, I mean, we, you know, we don't even think of that stuff, that kind of things. To have to make a choice, wow, do I go to church and drive the, and I don't have the money to pay for the gas to get me here, or do I send my time? I mean, that's so far from where we live. You know, we just don't even think about those things. And yet, in so many parts of the world, that's the way it is. I mean, they're, they're living, you know, meal to meal almost. And, and you know, here D- David says just that. He says, you know what, if I'm going to offer something to the Lord, it, I can't do it if it's not going to cost me anything. Because it's not really an offering. Unless there's some sacrifice involved. Um, because sacrifice is an essential part of really worshiping the Lord and um, being involved in service to the Lord. You know, we all understand that, but sometimes we forget that, I think, to practice that. Um, and so he says here, so David brought, bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of uh, silver, um, which is, says there in my footnotes, a little more than a pound of silver. Um, in First Chronicles, it says that he paid 600 shekels of gold. And it talks about that discrepancy. And it says David either bought in the initial transaction, he bought or leased the small threshing floor, 30 to 40 feet square, and then purchased the oxen. And then... Um, 50 shekels of uh, silver was appropriate for that. And then he bought uh, the site 
costing 180 times as much. So, y you know, all those things you can, you, can, you can work out. But the point here is that it costs David something. In Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 to 10, it says this, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? Where, and if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. Verse 9, it says, Now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. Um, and it's not so much the, the amount. You know, it's not talking about, you know, 50 sheep versus one. But it's, it's the quality of the offering. It's, it's, it's really what is it costing you? Is it costing you anything? Um, or Second Corinthians chapter eight verses one to five, Paul says this: We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, <clears throat> as I can testify, <clears throat> and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And so when you stop and think about, you know, giving your time, your talent, your treasure to the Lord, you know, you have to stop and ask, okay, is this, is this hurting me? Is this, is this something that is, or is this just cream off the, cream off the top? Um, because it does. It, it does affect, you know, the nature of the gift being given. And so he said that in verse 25, in the end here, it says, And David built there an altar to the Lord and burnt, <coughs> offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea of the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. That's how the whole uh, Samuel ends. You know, the one thing that's, that's interesting is that, I don't know, if I was David and I sinned and 70,000 people died as a result, um, I don't think I would be building anything for the Lord. You know what I mean? I mean, I'd be like, you want me to build an altar? I don't think so, pal. I'm going to go hide somewhere in a cave. I don't know. I mean, that's, that would be my answer, you know, to this. And yet you see David being obedient. He does exactly what the Lord tells him to do. And, you know, you think of just the reception that maybe, or the perception that he was giving people um, as he went through this time. You know, all these people were dead. And now he's building an altar? Wow. And that, you know, it really speaks of God's grace in somebody's heart when they go through a time like this, that God can heal those deepest, darkest wounds. And obviously, uh, he did that for David.